All right, good morning, everyone. I'd like you to uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. We're done the hard part, which is a relief for me coming today. Uh, a little less uh, stress over topic. Um, <clears throat> so recently I've had the privilege of doing a wedding and attending a wedding. I attended a wedding yesterday in the morning. And um, uh, the thing about weddings is that they are heavily laden with symbols, right? Everything about the wedding. I'm not sure what the flowers symbolize, except that I think they might serve to... I know when you're paying for them as the father of the bride, they cost a lot of money. You're kind of like, how much for things that are going to be dead tomorrow? Right? That's a stressor. My youngest daughter said, can I buy my flowers at Shrapper? I said, yes, you can. And she did. She saved us a lot. Serious money. So I'm not sure what the flowers mean, but I know what the white dress means. Symbol of purity and beauty and ultimately a picture of Christ and his church. And what a man committing himself to a woman means, because I know that Christ in his mercy and grace has committed himself to us. And so that is a, a symbol that is precious and valuable when you understand it from the biblical perspective. From a secular perspective, it, it, it is not laden with heavy symbolism. <clears throat> in every wedding that I've ever done, uh, it's not an essential part of a wedding. I tell people that the only thing that has to happen is there's a pronouncement, and when you walk out of here, you are legally man and wife. That's all that has to happen. Everything else is potential, it's possible, but it's not mandatory, okay? The ring is something I've never been to a ceremony without rings, okay? The ring is not the marriage, but it is a symbol that every time someone looks at it on your left hand, they hear a message, and that is, I am spoken for, I am committed, I am taken, um, it, it, it's every time it's there, it speaks. It in, in and of itself, it can be taken off. I can take this off because it's silicone, this one, because we lost the gold ones. Uh, I could take it off, and I am still married. But the symbol worn, right, says something. People look at it, and they say, he's taken. Not that, it, not that most people are interested in me, okay? <laughs> I'm very, I'm, some of you are thinking, I hope he knows that I do, okay? And she said I do, and... 34 years ago on Friday, by the way. You guys know June 21st is the longest day of the year, okay? I, not of my life, of the year, okay? Summer solstice. So the other symbol that comes to mind as I was thinking through this text was the symbol of the American flag. We live in an interesting culture that struggles to value things that have community value. People love things that have individual value and say something about themselves, but very few people in our culture today, I think it's particularly true of the younger generation for a variety of reasons, and I don't mean it as a critique. It's just a reality that's present. The love of, of that symbol is lessened pretty dramatically. Okay? Um, to a war vet... The symbol is heavy duty. They've sacrificed friends, blood, parts of their lives for your freedom. And so when someone takes and disgraces that flag or burns it, it is a deep offense to them. 
it, it, it causes something to rise in them that's probably stronger than most emotions that they experience because it means something to them. Not because they think the country they live in is perfect. It is far from perfect. But they're able to see it as a symbol of the place where they live and the place that they love. And so it has meaning. It's laden with symbolism for them. And it means various things to various people depending on their experience. The text that we look at today is about a symbol. Uh, It's about an ordinance is the word that's often used. Some churches might refer to it as a sacrament. And there are two that Jesus gave to the church. One is the sacrament of communion and one is the sacrament of baptism. Okay? The reason we don't use the word sacrament is we don't see the symbols and the participation in them as conveying saving grace. Okay? In the Catholic church, they use the word sacrament because it's, it indicates at some level that the participation that in that is essential and that it conveys something of what Christ did to you in your performance of that exercise. Okay, we believe that salvation is by grace alone. We believe that's what the Bible teaches and that whether or not I take communion does not make me a Christian. Whether I wear this ring doesn't make me married and devoted to my marriage. It's an issue of the heart, right? And we understand that. Okay, so baptism is the initiatory rite, if you will, and communion is the ongoing reflection on the cross work of Jesus. And I'll get into that a little more fully in a minute. But these are symbols that are loaded. They speak about the very essential elements of Christian faith. They speak of things that without them we would stop meeting and wouldn't, we would not even exist. I would have never come to this area to get involved in a church plan here. Why? Because I wouldn't have something to share. I'd be running an East Hardware store instead, okay, which my brother is involved with now. I, I My compelling reason, calling from God, was to make Christ known in this community. That's why we exist as a church. So that the name of Christ, so that everything that is proclaimed in communion would flow through our lips and our lives, our feet, to the community around us. That's the compelling objective. Now, what happens with symbols is that they fall into abuse. They're taken casually they're taken for granted and the meaning of the symbol is lost in the performance of it and what becomes important is that i have the flag hanging in front of my house or what becomes important is that i'm wearing the ring on my finger in spite of where my heart is folks apart from the truth that they proclaim symbols are a waste of effort and time if they're not valued for what they say they cease to have meaning and value and purpose and can be set aside on the trash heap of life. So let's read this text with this picture of laden symbol. And I think it will help you to understand why this text is, is at one level, it's not complicated to understand by and large, but it's heavy. Here's what Paul says in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. And I believe that's based on 1 Corinthians 1, a church that was loyal to Apollos and Paul and Peter, fractionalized, schismatic church. Paul says, I I don't struggle believing that there are divisions. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's not communion. 
For when you were eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, remembering me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, in the context of a communion service, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. That's grace. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should, not eat you, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further instructions. I'll make just one uh, quick observation for you. Okay, if you look at verse... 17, you see the word meetings or gatherings, depending on your translation. Verse 18, when you come together. Okay? Get down to verse 33. The topic of when you come together to eat is brought up again. Okay? So, at the beginning end of this text, I can understand the the portion that contains this, this teaching about communion is boxed in by the thought of when you gather together. There are certain things that should happen in certain ways so that the truth meant to be proclaimed through the symbol is clarified and not disgraced. Okay? So I think my sermon title on the bulletin is Life Together is Proclaiming. Okay? Because the discussion about communion is about life together, one in Christ, And when we're one in Christ, it is proclaiming Christ. Okay? And it's really a text, I think, fundamentally about the value of unity that is created by the gospel of Jesus. It's what causes us to gather like this to enjoy life together and God's word together and worship together and afterwards some food together. Okay? So that's the, the thrust. So first thing that you read as you go through the text is you see a very pointed and strong rebuke. In verse 18, Paul says, I hear there are schisms among you when you gather, and I find it to be believable. Okay, verse 19 helps us to understand what's going on. Okay, he says, no doubt there have to be differences among you. Now, I'm going to give you my take on this verse, because it's a little, it's one that's a little bit uh, complicated, if not difficult to kind of grasp. I think Paul is responding to 
justification amongst the wealthy in Corinth who want their behavior at exclusive meals to be justified by a simple observance in culture. Some people have a lot, and some people have a little. And those in Corinth that had a lot did not care about the impact of their choices on those that had less. And that's why Paul says this is a serious problem. Because what it was doing was it was creating distinctions within the church based on social standing. Okay, and Paul finds that highly offensive because we are brought together in Christ through a Savior who humbled himself and sacrificed and set aside everything for our redemption. And he's, he's, he's confronting this piousness, this, this self-exaltation that's present in the church. They used that difference in culture to justify what Paul will call evil behavior, namely private, exclusive meals, where some were allowed in and some were intentionally excluded. Okay, and the way that probably worked in the ancient world was when they were coming together for their gathering or for a meal in which communion was part of it. It was a love feast, an agape feast, a meal that they participated in. The, the, the text seems to indicate that some people weren't able to get there as efficiently and quickly as others. And so those that were wealthy and had more freedom and control over their lives, they got together and they just started eating irregardless of the fact that others were unable to attend at that time. Or they were simply uninvited. I'm not exactly sure. But in either case, they saw themselves as more deserving, saw their Wealth as a symbol of God's approval. Paul's going to swing the total opposite direction. You're not deserving of God's blessing. You were actually standing under God's judgment. That's the way the text ends. Okay? So Paul's addressing this distortion of the Lord's Supper. If you're blessed by money, here's what Paul says later. Handle it with care. He says, Timothy, warn those who are rich in this present world not to become conceited. Same issue. To think that the material blessing in my life is indicative of the approval of God. Or in fact is sourced in the fact that God saw that I would be good and put me in a higher class. Paul finds that in light of the cross to be utterly and unbelievably offensive. Now, what is the effect of their eating and yucking it up? before those that work a common job are able to get there because of, probably because of time constraints and their work demands. And they come in walking late. And in this case, Paul says, some of you, God forbid, you're already drunk. And you've eaten till you're full. And what you said to the other people is that you are less valuable, less meaningful, less honorable before God. Here's the way he says it in verse 21. He says, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. The church is divided into two categories in this scenario. What do you have? You have the hungry, poor, and you have the drunken, rich. Paul Paul is painting in stark colors. He wants them to see what they're doing. And later you're going to see Paul's issue with them, fascinatingly, is... It's not that they're getting drunk. He's not saying that's okay. He's clearly addressed that earlier in Corinth. 
But what he's saying is your drunkenness is nothing compared to the disgrace that you're bringing on the body of Christ. We need to realize that our lives as they're lived have an impact on those around us. My personal decisions are not to be private decisions. Right? Every decision I make has an impact on people around me. That's what Paul's driving home here. The effect of what they're doing is they are dividing the church. One starves, one indulges recklessly. And there is a tragic distortion of love. And you find the epitome of self-indulgence in this text. Verse 22, Paul tightens the noose a little bit. He says, you despise and you humiliate the poor. Notice what he says. Don't you have homes to eat and get drunk in? Don't, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Paul's like, most emphatically, no. The behavior of self-centered living at all levels for Paul is utterly unacceptable because of the cross. Here's where Paul's moving. How we relate here tells us what we really believe here. Okay? That is truth that goes to the heart of my life. How I treat my wife here, 1 Corinthians 11, first half of the chapter, tells me everything you need to know about what I really think about God. This can be a total sham. It can be play acting, role playing. If this is not right. And very seldom will you find this right without this being in place. Okay, so what Paul's concern is that when you distort the crosswork of Christ, you you bring devastation to the culture, to the church, to the community, to the workplace. When you think that it's all about you, you fail to understand, you end up dividing and you end up despising. The word despise simply means to look down on stratify people, and make sure everybody is under you. That's the idea of that word. And then he says, and by this despising, you humiliate. You don't simply ignore. You publicly put them to shame. They walk in to the dining room, and you've all already eaten, and the message is clear. What you deserve is scraps. That's what self-indulgent behavior does. And Paul, what he's saying is, I cannot see any correlation between how you relate to each other and to the glorious truth of the cross that we sung about so beautifully a few minutes ago. Paul's saying, there is no correlation. You You have decimated people around you. And he won't sit back as it happens. You remember the themes that we looked at in chapter 8? Everything is to be done out of love, out of a preference for other. If I'm avoiding certain behavior so that it don't offend someone out of love, that is the right thing to do. Chapter 10, verse 23, whatever you do, make sure that it builds others up and never tears them down. That it's always about how can I help, not hurt. You got to be, I'm going to tell you folks, you got to be sensitive to the Spirit of God so that as you do certain things, you sense You're listening for the Spirit of God to affirm or convict as you walk through life. 
It's not easy to live a cross-like life. It's not easy to take up my cross every day, say goodbye to Tim Hoff, and follow him. But that's what communion teaches me. It communicates this incredible love that exalts and values others. That's what Philippians 2 is saying, isn't it? Have this mind in you that was in Christ. He was very God, and yet he humbled himself. Right? What Paul is rebuking them for is the fact that their life in no way captures the essence of the cross work of Jesus. In fact, it is doing it a deep and tragic disservice. Paul's advice to them is very simple. Take it home. You can shamelessly indulge at home like that, but for that, Paul says, I have no praise. Here's a simple truth that emerges out of this first portion. It is impossible to have true communion when you have a life with divisions and schisms. You can't. Because communion says we're one. It says we're bound together in Christ. It says that there is no distinction among us. Yes, we're male and female with different roles, but we are not different in value before God. We may be Jew or Greek, is the way Paul will say it in Ephesians, but we're still one when we come into the church. In church, you may be my employer and and I may be your employee, but in the context of church life, that evaporates. That's what Philippians is saying. So all of the things that the world looks at as status symbols, when we come into this setting, it all is to fade away. That's why we don't call Doug Dr. Doug. Right? Doug's got a real PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. Okay, most of you don't know that, but he does. Okay, and he worked hard for that. We don't put that out there. Why? We don't want people looking at things with distinction. Doug's not better than you because he's more educated than you. Okay? So in the church, the communion table says we're one. We come on the same basis that we're sinners in need of a great Savior, and we are responsible for the impact of our behavior on those around us. The careless disregard in Corinth is the thing that Paul says, I, I can barely handle it. You get that sense, don't you? He's like erupting. And so he sends him a letter before he goes. Okay, move to verse 23 then. Okay, now the corrective. Paul's going to help them to see, okay, here's what's wrong with what you're doing. The corrective is to go back to the original design. It's to go back to the first Lord's Supper and find out what they did because This is our goal as a church. People say, what's the chapel? I say, look, our desire is to proclaim the cross work of Jesus and ultimately to be biblical Christians through and through. That's our desire, to find ourselves in everything that we do together and separately, everything to be in line with what God's Word is saying in principle and in terms of commands. Okay, it's to to be a biblical church. So what does Paul do? He reaches back to the original design that was given to him, and he says, I'm not altering it, I'm passing it on to you. Notice the language. It's to take what he's been taught, and in the same fashion, without alteration, to pass it on. Okay, so here's what he says in verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, and then he goes into a rather thorough description of the first communion uh, celebration. Okay, what's there? Here's what we find. There was thanksgiving from Christ. The word eucharisteo is the Greek word. We get our English word. What's the English word that comes from that? Do you know? Eucharist. Okay? It's a a meal of thanksgiving. 
Okay? So that, that's what Paul's saying. When Christ sat at the table, the first thing he did was to look to his father and say, thank you. Second thing that he says is he took bread. And he broke it. And, he, and, he, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. The idea of that simply is my life, my physical tent dwelling sacrificed for your advantage and benefit. That's the idea. So that the death that you deserve physically would not come to you. I stood in your place and I bore it for you. That's what the bread aspect of communion says, that Christ lived and died, a, lived, lived a perfect life and then died in our place. And there's, if there's one thought I try to impress on people in sharing the gospel is you need to understand the in my placeness, and I know that's not a word, but it is. The in my placeness of Christ's work on the cross. He stood for you in your place on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. That's why communion evokes thanksgiving, humble, brokenhearted gratitude. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. So there's broken bread. There's also the cup. It says after they'd eaten the bread, he also took with them the cup, verse 25, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The word in my blood may be clarified by saying a new contract agreement with God ratified by the blood of Christ. Okay? So a contract doesn't have value unless it's signed. And the new covenant, God's offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is ratified or put into place by the death and shed blood of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. So when we're partaking of the Lord's table, the, the bread symbolizing the broken body of Christ and the cup that, that partaken is a symbol of the blood of Christ that ratifies, that makes complete the hope of salvation for everyone to trust in Him. It's a beautiful picture. And I hope every time you take it, you focus on that. 1 Peter 1.18, Peter reflects on this, and here's what he says. He says, remember that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your old way of life, broken, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb, without spot and without blemish, without defect and without sin for you. That's the glory of the cross. That he comes and offers to broken sinners hope and forgiveness and change. And in Corinth they had slipped back. And these are believers who have slipped back into a mindset that is a tragic distortion of what that cross speaks to us. And so Paul writes and he, he's, he's calling them back. And, and, and here's the last thing he says. And I think this, this just, I don't know, I can't take the Lord's Supper without thinking about this verse 26 he says for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup whenever you take communion it's the way that we refer to it i'm not sure why we say it that way but we do whenever you drink this cup and eat this bread you are proclaiming the lord's death until he comes you know what that means that means we all in a communion service as believers become preachers of christ 
that what we are doing in the, in the taking of those symbols, we are making a statement for those that observe and corporately together we're making a statement that Christ has taken sinners from all different walks of life and from different genders, from different backgrounds, from different social statuses, and He has bound us together to be His body, His representative here. And here's why Paul's upset. That proclaiming is so deeply flawed when the table was being taken like it was in Corinth, carelessly, recklessly, thoughtlessly, without gratitude, without full appreciation, and, and, and without assimilating that truth into life, it was being utterly destroyed. So that though they were taking the bread and cup, they were not having the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul says. What you're doing is not communion. You may call it that, but it's not that. If I am unloyal to my wife, in our commitment in marriage, this is a lie. And I might as well take it off. That's what Paul's saying. The symbol is laden with truth. That truth needs to be proclaimed to the world I live in. Our life together in Christ, bound together in Christ, makes a proclamation. That's why our unity is so crucial as the body of Christ. We together say something. Because we're part of the same family and part of the same body. This bedrock, foundational, precious truth for the church is only clearly proclaimed when we are living life together. And this is what is tragically lost when we divide and attack in church and family. You know, I met a couple recently and got to know them a little bit. And I met one of their neighbors. And you know, that can always be interesting, right? Oh, so-and-so, I met, I met your neighbor recently. And the guy I'm talking to is not a believer. Not in any sense of the word. First thing he said to me was, I said, I met your neighbors recently. They just moved in like a year and a half ago. Oh, yeah. The first thing he said to me, he said, they are an incredible family. They are an amazing family. I want to tell you something. There is no better platform from which to speak the goodness of Christ than from a family that loves one another and honors God. And it is impossible to speak Jesus from a fractured platform that so utterly distorts the gospel that it is no longer recognizable and it is no longer being proclaimed. That's why as the church we need to take seriously these exhortations, this call to be the body of Christ and to come to the Lord's table rightly like it was done originally so that we make a clear proclamation that the world around us we know desperately needs to hear. Folks, listen. If you're the kind of person that complains about your culture, First, I want to say, may God help you. May God deliver you from that negative perspective. Secondly, see the world you live in as a mission field, where the the more consistently and authentically in your marriage and in your workplace and in every interaction in your neighborhood, the more authentically you live Jesus, 
the more you are preaching the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And when, when, when I'm fractured, I'm not helpful to people. When I'm in division with people in the church, I am not helpful. The message, for me, it just gets quiet, like eerily quiet. Why? Because I don't have the joy in talking about the fountain of joy if things are broken. So God calls us to dwell together in unity. And he says how beautiful and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters in Christ live together in unity. There is something being proclaimed. It is that Christ has made us one. He has forgiven and made it possible for us to live life together in a way that honors and glorifies him. It should happen here. It should happen in every Christian home. It should happen where every Christian works. That their presence is not negative, bickering, complaining, condemning. But it is a positive witness to the fact that Jesus has changed my life. May God help us to embrace this joyful life. So that, yes, does America have problems? Yes, deeply troubling stuff in our country. But powerful and profound stuff coming from the cross of Christ. It's really a decision you've got to make about how you're going to live. Stop complaining. It doesn't change a thing. Turn a light on. Show people and how you respond to them and love them that Jesus is alive and has transformed your life, is giving you hope in a world that's hopeless. Be the family next door that the guy says, they're a good family. I've never had someone say that to me before. I was like, it stuck. May that be our reputation. It certainly was not the reputation of Corinth. Now the warning, and I'll close with this. So then whoever drinks, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is, now folks, I want you to get this. The rest of this chapter is strong. Those that eat it in an unworthy manner are guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. That is to sin against the life and work and teachings of Jesus. That's what it is. That's, I don't think I need to do a lot of explaining. If someone burns a flag, I don't have to tell a war vet, oh, you know what that means? That means they don't like their country. It's too obvious and disturbing. And that's what's going on here. Paul says, you all are decimating what communion proclaims in the death of Christ in the sinner's place. Now, when it says when you eat it in an unworthy manner, you've got to think first context, okay? The context I was raised in, here's the way communion always happened, and I've done it here probably for years. You know, when you come to the Lord's table today and you're going to eat and partake of the elements, uh, you need to make sure that your heart is clean. I still believe that, okay? So don't misunderstand me. If you hear me saying, you need to be sinless, you're not hearing what this text is saying, okay? I am not saved by my performance, and I am not able to take communion based on my performance. I am only ever worthy when I am washed in the blood of Christ. That's it. Someone said, oh, I mean... I have actually heard someone praise me in my life at one point, okay? Not frequent, but it's happened, okay? I just want you to know that. It's tempting when someone affirms you 
to get all about that, right? You all know what I'm saying, right? Let me be honest, okay? I heard one, one preacher said, he said, I got done preaching a sermon, and this dear elderly lady in the church came up to me and said, Pastor, that was the best sermon I've ever heard preached. He said, that's exactly what Satan told me when I was done. I'm ready to think about that. When we come to the Lord's table, what we're saying is, God, I am in a confessional mode. The unworthiness is what was going on in Corinth. It wasn't about the struggle I have. It was about saying, Megan, I don't care about you. Saying to Willie, Willie, you know what? I'm first. Sorry you had to be late, Edward. There's some scraps on the table for you. That's what Paul's warning against. It's not about that I might have struggled with a lustful thought this week, although I need to deal with that. Okay, I don't want to come to the table careless. Please understand what I'm saying. Or I didn't struggle with a bad attitude towards my mate. God knows me. Okay? She's not deserving of it, but I'm capable. We need to be in a confessional mode when we come to the table so that we don't practically deny it. But even more, our relationships with each other are the acid test that Paul raises in this text. The acid test is if you are not loving and appreciating and encouraging and 1023, right? Doing what encourages and builds others up. You should be afraid to come to the table because your life is an utter blasphemy and denial of what it says. That's the issue that should cause you to step back and say, but it's also the issue that should cause you to say, God, forgive me. You see, the warning is not to drive people away from the table. The warning is to say, listen to God and come back to the table. Okay, so the rest of the text, it's heavy. For this reason, some are sick among you and some have died. You're probably thinking, come again? Why so strong, Paul? Because if you mess with the gospel, you're messing with eternal truth. You're messing with the hope that we have as Christians. That my messed up life can be redeemed by a glorious Savior. That's why we sing, oh, what a Savior. Isn't He wonderful? That's when we come to the table to each other. Which if I just discarded you from the meal and you got in late and I said, have some scraps. I left something for you. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Right? But when we wait for each other and we show deference for each other and we serve like Jesus did in John 13 when the supper was being served, we, we start proclaiming. That's why Jesus says in John 13 verse 34, by this selfless love and sacrifice, shall all men know that you belong to me. Because there is something tangible, concrete in your life that is impressed with the image of the cross. People see it then when you start to explain to them in their sin that there's hope. It resonates. Because they don't see in you a perfect life, but they see a changed life. That is, because of Christ, believable. May God help us. Now, I'm going to tell you this, because the end is this. I cannot escape the fact that this text is strong. 
If you're here this morning and you say, okay, where's Dan Slack? Dan Slack's sitting over there. Dan Slack has wrestled with, with cancer. Should Dan live with guilt that maybe this text is talking about his struggle? Okay, I know Dan well enough to know that he's an imperfect man. But I know that he loves the body of Christ. Okay? James 5 tells us sometimes people get sick, and when they do, you should call the elders. Sometimes the confession of sin leads to healing. I think that's exactly what this text is talking about. Same thing. And I'm going to go a little further. If you are living in hard-hearted rebellion against God with disdain for your brother or sister in Christ, whether it's your wife or your husband or your child, or a brother or sister in Christ. I hope you hear this text. It is sobering. And it is a call to action. And it is a call to fall at the foot of the cross. And then eat of that bread. And drink of that cup. In true proclaiming. So that. When we come together. We can say for us as a church. That our life together. Is proclaiming. Now, I'm going to tell you this. It needs words. Okay? Romans 10, 17 is clear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. I find it a lot easier to speak the word of God into the life of someone who just said to me, that's a great family. Does that make sense? And if you're living truth, people see it. And if you're not, they see it. So for the world around me that needs Christ, like I need Christ, please understand how I say that. For that world, may God make us people that live life together, honoring, cherishing, valuing each other so that life together is proclaiming. So go to God in your heart today and say, God, my relationship with my wife says something, but it is not proclaiming. Forgive me. My relationship to my child says something but it is not cross-proclaiming. That's how you got to respond to this text. Or you're walking on dangerous ground or thin ice with God. That's what the text says. So I would encourage you where you sit this morning as we sing before you stand. Maybe you need to go to God and say, God, I do not love the church. My sporadic attendance, my attitude towards others, my failure to get involved and serve, to commit, says something about how I see Jesus. Forgive me. Forgive me. And let my life join in the proclaiming that you aim to do through your church. God, help us. As Carmela comes and begins to play with the worship team, some of us may just need to be honest and stay in our seat and say, God, forgive me. My life has been disgracing the cross. Cleanse me and cause me to be proclaiming in my life. Lord, help us to be a proclaiming church because this community desperately needs to know Jesus. Help us to proclaim in our actions 
in our loving service. Help us to proclaim in our marriages, with our children, in our jobs, as we go to athletic events. Help us to be proclaiming people that there is hope in Christ. So Lord, bless as we pray first, and then as we rise to sing truth about Jesus.